Well, if I were a shameless church marketer or a religious huckster, I would either never talk about hell or I would so reimagine it that it wouldn't look anything like what Jesus talks about in the Bible. But if I were a Christian pastor, I would quote Jesus even when he says things like this. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I am a Christian pastor. And so without hesitation, without reserve, but with resolve, I want to quote Jesus again and again and again so that we might hear what Jesus says, whether it be about heaven, love, grace, or justice, righteousness, and even eternal condemnation. And so we're doing this series on hell, mainly looking at what Jesus has to say, because Jesus is the authority. He's the founder of this thing called Christianity to begin with. He owns the church by virtue of the fact that he bought it with his blood. And so we're looking at something called Hell Matters. And we're doing it under seven headings. We've looked at the first five. I'll just relist them for you in case you'd like to write them down. And then this morning we'll wrap up with numbers six and seven. Number one, the first heading was the definiteness of hell. The definiteness of hell. And we heard what Jesus had to say about that again and again and again as well as his apostles. Number two, the definition of hell. The definition of hell. Again, allowing Jesus and his apostles to define it for us. Number three, the description of hell. The description of hell. Hearing things like forever and ever, eternal, seeing things like conscious torment described. Very awful things. Number four, the despot or the ruler of hell the despot or the ruler of hell. And we looked at passages like Revelation 14 where people are suffering in the presence of the Lamb, the sovereign God being in control. And number five, we also saw the duration of hell, the duration of hell, which was like the description. It uses eternal. The Bible does again and again to describe how long hell lasts. This morning we'll look at 6 and 7. The degrees of punishment in hell. The degrees of punishment in hell. And number 7, the denizens or the inhabitants of hell. We're going to finish today unless you feel so compelled. And I've already been told in first service people do feel so compelled. Uh, If you feel compelled to send questions my way, I'd be happy to tie those into some sort of sermon format. Maybe we'll look at Luke 16 a little bit next Sunday because we don't have time today, but I would like to engage some of your questions you might have uh, if you haven't already asked. So you can email them to the church at info at 
omahabiblechurch.org. And uh, if it comes on Saturday, too late. Um, sorry. If it comes on Saturday, pause, too late. Okay. <laughs> but if you want to send them before then, that'll be ha- uh, I'll be happy to engage the questions. All right, let's go ahead and get down to it and get down to number six, the degrees of punishment in hell. And rhetorically, I suppose I should say, are there degrees of punishment in hell? Do you think there are degrees of punishment in hell? Uh, Maybe one sense you'd think that doesn't seem to be right because isn't one sin enough if it's against this holy, righteous, eternal God and we violated his righteous standards? Isn't one sin, we say that sometimes, isn't one sin enough to condemn someone? The answer to that would be yes. But are there degrees of punishment in hell? Well, based upon what Jesus says in Matthew 11, I think the answer to that is yes. And so let's go ahead and look in our Bibles at Matthew 11 to see that Jesus does talk about condemnation and judgment. And he talks about it in terms of it being worse for some and worse for some than others. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is engaging those he's done many miracles in front of and in their midst. In fact, they have experienced his miracles firsthand. And then he says, and if you look there with me carefully in verse 20, these words are describing him. It says these words, and he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, Jesus says. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. Let's pause just for a moment to reflect on what he's saying. He's likening them to others who have had a bad reputation spiritually. You know, you know those people... Over there, those anti-God people who everyone thinks, you know, they, oh, they deserve some judgment from God. And he says to these who have experienced his miracles, you know what? It's going to be worse for you than it is for them. And he cranks it up a few notches in the next series of verses. Look at 22. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. I guess we got that. Let's go to 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades or hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I imagine at least at first it was quiet like it's quiet here before the objections and hostility kick in. Now, I think every single one of us more than likely feel the sense of what's going on there. You can not know much about the Bible at all, and you've more than likely have heard of Sodom. Yeah, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, Old Testament. Good or bad? (laughs) Yeah, like classic epitome example illustration of bad. If anybody deserves condemnation, it would be Sodom. It would be Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you see what Jesus is doing. 
it will be better for them than it will be for you, he says, addressing the people who'd experienced his ministry. Pretty intense. They'd seen him do the works that confirmed him as the promised Old Testament coming king. The Messiah is the technical word for it. They, he, he'd raised the dead. He'd done the miraculous. He'd done amazing things. And not like the hucksters on TV, some lower back pain, one leg's longer than the other. Woo! You know, send money now at the bottom of the screen. It wasn't that. You have bodies that have been dead long enough that they smell bad. And he raises them from the dead, like Lazarus. He's showing that he's the real thing as anticipated, as promised by the Old Testament. And he says, and you didn't repent. You didn't change your mind about who I am. It's going to be worse for you. Based upon this text, as well as some others, but even based upon this text alone, I come to the conclusion that there are, in fact, degrees of punishment in hell. That it will be worse for some than it will be for others, even if it's bad for everybody. And that's based upon what in principle? If we're going to principalize this passage and say, all right, what would make it worse? What would make it worse would be more revelation. You've received fuller, more vivid revelation. As they certainly did. As they certainly did. He's not trying to give Sodom a free pass. But he's showing how much more guilty or culpable these folks are. Now, let's go to another text and then we'll move on. But let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. If you go to Hebrews 10 we'll see another text that would relate to this matter of worse punishment for some than others. This is not exactly an uplifting series. It's not really meant to be. I don't think the the people of this region that heard from Jesus were uplifted. But I promise you at the end... As we contemplate the love of God, as we contemplate the cross of Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, you certainly should be uplifted. When you consider what Christ did on our behalf, it's an amazing thing, and it's more amazing when we understand something of the significance of hell. Hebrews 10.29 says this, How much worse... Punishment. I underline those two words. Worst punishment. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? A rhetorical question, but rhetorical in a damning sense. Condemning sense. Worst punishment. It's going to be worse for some. And it will be for others. And here is where we do application. It's kind of interesting because sometimes people say, I just wish the sermons had more application. It's just theology. You know what? Then when you really get application, you really don't want application. (laughs) Let's apply this. 
The more you receive, the more you're accountable for. Hell is going to be hotter for some. People who hear the gospel again and again and again. People who have Christian friendships, experience Christian blessings, who are part of Christian churches, but they're not really Christians, and they experience some of these great things, but they don't, as Jesus said, truly repent. It's going to be worse. Week in and week out, another Christ-exalting sermon and the call to believe in Christ. You're exposed to more revelation. Communion again and again and again, watching through symbols, this vivid reminder of the gospel, but you don't truly believe in Christ. Hell is going to be all the hotter. It is. You know, in the book of Hebrews, what's going on is you've got these professing Christians who've experienced blessings of being associated with the church and they've experienced these amazing things because of God's grace working in this believing community. But you know what? The pressure's getting to them. The pressure from their friends, pressure from their families, pressure from their former religion. And they're starting to think and conclude that, you know what, my life was better before, perhaps. And they climbed up on the fence and they're thinking about going back. And Hebrews 10 is just so severe. You know what? I would be a fool to think there is an application there for us. If you go back, it's going to be worse. Right now you're hearing a sermon that's exalting Christ. You're hearing about the truth of God. Even right here at a quarter till 12 on the 3rd of July, 2011, hell will be hotter for you if you don't believe in Christ. Am I stretching it to come to that conclusion? I don't think so. Raised in a Christian home? Accountable for that. Accountable for all of it. And the longer I'm a pastor, the more I see the need to preach a sermon like this. Because people profess Christ. They, before you know it, seem to be doing well. They might even be leading some kind of ministry. And then, you know what, over time, it's like the book of Hebrews. They start thinking, you know, maybe my life was better apart from the church. See, this isn't theoretical. This is real. I want to preach a series coming up, maybe just one sermon, on the four soils. You know why? Because I need it for my own soul. (laughs) So interesting. It's not an evangelistic sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew 13. He gathers his disciples and he tells them about the four soils because he's equipping them to go out and preach the gospel. And he wants them to know and understand that there are going to be different responses to the truth. 
And some of the responses aren't going to be positive. But some of them are going to be positive, but then over time, because of the pressure of persecution or the love of the world or whatever, people are going to walk away. Even though it looked like they were alive. So interesting. He does it for the disciples so that they can know that there's going to be different responses. So they don't change the message in light of some people walking away. I need that for my soul because now, having been a pastor however many years, you get a little bit more time to observe and and your heart gets broken. And you say, Lord, I don't want it to be this way. I need a category. What's happening to this person who seemed to be doing so well before? Okay, four soils is helpful for me and for my soul and for my sanity. And for yours too, because you watch it happen. Back to the topic at hand. Hell is going to be hotter for some. More experience, more exposure, it's going to be worse. Helpful quotation for me, for my own fellowship amongst pastors, I guess, is this quotation I found a few months ago from Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher from the 1800s. Some of you follow his reading list, reading through the Bible in a year. He said this, As I was walking in the fields yesterday, that thought came with overwhelming power into my mind that every one I preached to would soon stand before the judgment seat and be sent either to heaven or hell. Therefore, brethren, I must warn you, I must tell you about hell. I say, I must tell you about hell. Because you are going to die sooner than later. Tick, tock, tick, tock. That's what I say every time. I say it to the doctor every time they find something else on my person. And they say, oh, we better cut that off. Tick, talk, tick, talk. They don't know what to do with that. I'm looking for opportunities. And that's real. Every single one of you is going to die soon or then later. And you will stand before God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it's appointed for a person to die once and then comes judgment. We would be fools to live as if it was never going to happen. And I would not be a very good pastor if I never thought about eternal destinies, my own and then yours. So let's not play games. Let's realize that Jesus is dead serious about this stuff. And we call ourselves Christians. And hell is going to be worse for some based upon rejection. One more thing before moving on. You never have to hear the gospel to be guilty because we're all sinners. Romans chapter 1 talks about how everyone has experienced enough of God's revelation to be culpable. 
But for every time you hear the gospel, no doubt, there's more culpability, responsibility. Sobering things for us to think about. Very sobering. Let's go on to number seven. Number seven, the denizens or the inhabitants of hell. We see, uh, for starters, that Satan is going to be condemned to an eternal hell. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, talks about Satan under the title of the devil. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So Satan is there, uh, the beast is there, the false prophet, they're there, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Demons are there, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, ultimate judgment, great white throne judgment. And then we see unrepentant sinners are in hell, which is what we've been talking about. Satan's there, demons are there beast, false prophet, all those that you would say, yeah, they deserve to be there. And sinners are there. Sinners who don't have Christ's righteousness, His perfection credited to them by faith. Revelation 20.15 says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it would be the Lamb's book of life, showing you're not in Christ, He was thrown into the lake of fire. And if you're looking at 2015 and you learn about the lake of fire, you learn more about the lake of fire back in verse 20, which we just read, where it talks about fire and sulfur and there's torment day and night forever and ever. Bad stuff, huh? Doesn't get any worse. And like I said, if I was trying to be a marketer, this would be the last thing I would try to do. keep doing this and I know I do but I'm going to do it again I'm just reminding you that we profess to be part of the Christian religion therefore Christ is in charge and therefore Christ who speaks of hell is to be echoed he's to be quoted so I'm trying to do that the best I possibly can I want to prime the pump a little bit with some questions so I have a few questions to get us to kind of wrap this up together and maybe that'll bring some more questions in your mind. And one question I have on my list is one we've already talked about a little bit, but it's really important. And that question is, is this fair? That's an important question. It really is. Is this fair for God to damn people? to punish them, not just for a time, even for an eternity. Is this really fair? I know this is basic, but I just want to remind you of the basics. Let's think about this. The answer is yes, by the way. The word fair is the same word where we get the word just. It's justice. If we have a God who owns the universe, even as we read in the psalm this morning, it's His. He is by definition God, so He's over all. If it's His and He chooses to have laws, and this God has chosen to have laws, it's His prerogative, He can. 
first and foremost, if you want to get rid of every other law based upon Jesus' own statements, first and foremost, the most basic law of all is remember that he's God and treat him like he's God. You hear that from me all the time. I think that's appropriate because it's called the greatest commandment. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. There at the most basic level is God's law for God's universe. And you are part of his universe. And so you are accountable to him. And if you don't like that, it sort of proves the point. So far, okay, he's God. If this God chooses to say the consequence for violating that law is death, it's his prerogative. In fact, it's very logical. It makes sense. And the more you read the Bible, you don't have to read it very far, you see that this God is this kind of God. He is the sovereign. And he does have a law that's rational. It makes sense that we would not be irrational, that we would rationally come to the conclusion if there's one God who, who we're accountable to, that we would treat him like God. And where there's a violation of his law, according to his standards, he says that's punishable by death. Then you keep reading in your Bible, it doesn't take you very long to figure out it's not just physical death. So Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's fairness terminology. The wages, it's what you earn. He's giving you what you earned. Fairness, the wages of sin is death. And we know it's not just physical death, just keep reading. Revelation at the end talks about the second death. It's condemnation. Is this fair? You might not like it. I might not like it. But it seems to be fair. God's acting like God. We could delve in more and talk about how it's even people in hell are not transformed. They're still in rebellion against God. They're still not trusting in his son. They're still not repenting. They're still not loving him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so no doubt it can last forever because it's still going on. Maybe another question. No, I want to talk about the fair thing a little bit more. Now let's go on to another question. No, I'm vacillating. Just don't let me forget to talk about it later again. As we talk about the love of God, I want to talk about justice again. Another question is, are people in hell glorifying God? Philippians chapter 2. Let's go ahead and look at Philippians chapter 2 to see if people in hell are glorifying God. I didn't say worshiping, but are they glorifying God? Are they reflecting something that is true about the character of God? Is God putting his character on display even in the lives of people who are in hell? And I think Philippians chapter 2 would have us to conclude that, in fact, they are. Not the same as in heaven in giving him worship, but they are honoring him as the just sovereign in one way or another, even if it's by force. Philippians chapter 2 verse... 9 says, the context is Jesus humbling himself, becoming a human being, uh, 
And because he's humbled himself, even humbling himself to the point of going to the cross, the Father's going to highly exalt him and give him a name which is above every name. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's not a suggestion. That's a shall idea. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pretty much does it for me. He's using this, this all-encompassing description, whether they're, they're, they're on the earth, they're under the earth, they're above the earth, everywhere, what's going to happen is everyone is going to acknowledge the sovereignty of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Some have tried to make this teach, have the Bible teach universalism that eventually everyone will be worshiping Christ. Well, that's strange because in chapter 3, Paul talks about destruction. He's not arguing for universalism. But he is arguing for universal acknowledgement that Jesus really is who he said he was. And everyone one day will acknowledge his lordship even if it's by force. Pretty trippy to think about. One other question. And that final question is, will those people who are in hell have changed hearts Will they have changed hearts? And this relates to the second question. I think the answer to that is no. And I would like you to think with me why I would come to that conclusion. What leads to a changed heart? If you've had a changed heart, what, what has led to your changed heart? Well, it's the, it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, who has caused us to be born again. It's the Spirit's work. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Before you're a Christian, you're dead in trespasses and sins. God makes us alive together with Him. And I could go text after text after text after text, and I'm trying to get you to think in terms, what do you know to be true about the human heart apart from God's saving power? Well, it remains in a state of hostility toward God. Romans 5, we're enemies. Again, Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. I bring it up because I want you to see even more so how severe hell is. Those folks don't get the benefit of the Spirit's regenerating work. Think about it. If their hearts are still hard, if they're still dead in trespasses and sins, think about it in terms of this question. If after a million years they would have opportunity to get out of hell, if they simply worshipped God and loved Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, would they do it? And the answer to that question is no, they would not do it. 
Could they do it? The answer is no, they could not do it. In fact, I would like to put it in terms, if they could get out for a moment, and if they could, they would kill God for doing that to them. Their hearts aren't changed. I realize I'm theologizing here, but I'm taking everything that I would know about the human heart and saying, you know what, people in who are in hell, the Bible doesn't describe them as born again, regenerated. They still hate God as they did before. They still would never want to come to Him on His terms. This is a very, very sobering kind of reality. It might help us understand a little bit more why it would be forever. Someone put it in these terms. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral upon his sentence to hell. We must not imagine the damned displaying gospel repentance, longing for the presence of Christ. You get none of that. Helps me understand maybe why hell is so bad for so long. You know, even in the parable of rich man and Lazarus, which maybe that's what we'll talk about next time leading into some of the questions. He he wants his thirst quenched. He desperately wants his thirst quenched. He even wants people to go back and warn his family. But there's no evidence in the parable that somehow his heart has changed. He just doesn't like the suffering. It's very troubling. My final question would be, what does this have to do with the gospel? What's love got to do with it? What does this have to do with love? Let's end this series reflecting upon the love of God in Christ. I think we are more prepared to reflect upon the love of God in Christ than we would have been if we hadn't have talked about the reality of an eternal hell. We're ready to understand it like we haven't understood it before. It's so crucial that we prepare to understand just how great God's justifying righteous work in Christ is. And if you don't know something of hell, that's the something of the love of God you're not going to understand. Let me explain. I want to point to a cross, but there isn't one here. This is awful. (laughs) And I'm about ready to fall off if I go very far. (laughs) To lighten it up a little bit. Remember again, I think I've already mentioned this, but remember again with me about what's happening before Jesus goes to the cross when he's there in the garden. And he is pleading with his father. And one of the things he's pleading for, he says, take the cup. Well, if you know much at all about the Old Testament, the cup, symbolic many times would be the cup and the outpouring of the cup is the cup of God's wrath, His judgment. It's the image. And the Son is there in all of that angst and intensity and He's saying, take the cup. It's the cup of wrath. Now we know that He 
that Jesus knows he's not going to take it because even Jesus himself from the very beginning of his ministry has been setting his face toward Jerusalem to go to Calvary. But you get something of how intense that cup is going to be because he's very much a real person, a very much a real human being, and he is in great anguish. Why? Because he knows what he's going to experience when he goes to the cross. And you see where I want you to connect some dots here is he's going to go to the cross to bear the wrath of God, the wrath of God that we deserve, that we would have to spend an eternity in hell paying for. Think about now the son giving himself up for us. And the Father sending the Son because He loves a sinful, fallen, rebellious, antagonistic world. And now I'm starting to understand the love of God maybe better than I did before because of reflections upon hell and God's wrath. And then He's there on the cross and what is He crying out? He's crying out to His Father, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And we know that he knows the answer to the question. But again, it's so intense and it's so real. He's saying those things. Think about it in these terms now. And the answer is because he's bearing the wrath of his father. But think about it in these terms. In light of the fact that Jesus is dying a substitutionary death, which is talked about all the time in the Old and New Testament, the just for the unjust, right? He's dying in our place. In light of the fact that I deserve to be condemned, I deserve to go to hell, now we're understanding the cross better that Christ is there dying, absorbing the undiluted wrath of God for everyone, past, present, future, everyone, everywhere, who would ever believe. And you say, wow the cup and he drank that cup I'd like to say by way of figure he drank it dry we know he did because he himself said it is finished amazing awesome worship inducing so There, I get to go to hell. But God does maintain His justice in all of this, so fascinatingly enough, because He has His Son bear the wrath that we deserve, the penalty, as we might say, that must be paid, and He Himself pays it. And remember, it's not some thing he made the son do that the son didn't want to do the son gave himself up for us it's awesome it really is awesome to come contemplate and to consider remember the movie that was out that many years ago the, the passion movie i think they tried to do a good job of portraying the awfulness of physical crucifixion 
the one thing the movie couldn't do was portray the severity of the spiritual significance of what it would be like to have the God-man absorb the full wrath of God for everyone, everywhere, who would ever believe. You just can't do that. You need the Bible to explain that. We should be in awe of Jesus Christ and we should be in awe of the love of God like we wouldn't be otherwise. Like we wouldn't be otherwise. People who don't want to talk about hell ever and people who say they don't believe in it or whatever, I, I just I, I can guarantee you they, they don't they don't understand how great the love of God is shown for us in Christ. You can't. Read the gospel narrative sometime, maybe soon, maybe today. Look at the severity. And then you can maybe start to understand the significance of a for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, His one and only, His unique Son, literally so that all the believing on Him ones would not perish but have everlasting life. It's got some some gravitas to it. It's got some significance and it's got some weightiness to it that causes me to want to worship God. Remember verse 18 talks about the judgment that people are under who don't believe in Christ. It's still there. It's still there. Praise be to God for Christ and for His love that He's shown for us. And my prayer is that you would understand it better and you would worship Christ. You'd believe in Christ if you haven't. He's worthy of our praise like we can hardly even imagine. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for our study of the biblical doctrine of hell. May we grow in our understanding of it so that we might see how fearful it is to fall into the hands of the living God, as your word says. Lord, where hearts need to be softened and changed, I pray that they would be so that hell wouldn't have to be worse. And for believers, that you would tremendously encourage and bless us as we contemplate and reflect upon the gospel. Indeed, it is extraordinarily good news in light of the bad. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.